When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman. It's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different uh, perspective here. As you know, we receive a fair number of questions from you, our community, about a number of topics, I mean, any number of topics really, relating to botanical-style aquariums and the habitats uh, which they represent. Today, I want to answer a few that we've received recently uh, about leaf litter beds and, you know, the mindset behind the use of botanicals in our aquarium. And of course, these questions got me, you know, riffing about the concepts, the techniques, the executions that we bring to the table when we play with this stuff. Both questions got my writing juices going, so I wrote this wrong response and practically a huge blog on them the other day. And uh, just still really charged up about this. Uh, I think it's really interesting stuff. So here are the questions. First one, um, this is from JP in Prescott, Arizona in the United States. Uh, Scott, I understand you're interested in leaf litter beds and aquariums. I'm thinking of constructing a leaf litter bed in my 40-gallon blackwater aquarium. Could you give me a quick explanation of the benefit for my fishes of doing this? Thanks. Well, quick explanation for me is always a challenge, but here goes, JP. I'm obsessed with leaf litter bed in the wild and in the aquarium, and I think it's because it's literally an oasis of life. It's compelling, it's diverse, it's productive. So we need to think about leaf litter beds in the context of the wild habitats first. Now, many tropical rivers and streams are characterized by large quantities of leaf litter and decaying botanicals on the bottom, with typically clear, but often tinted, water. And as I've discussed many times here, leaf litter is used as a shelter, a spawning ground, a feeding area, and in some instances, a supplemental food itself. This is a highly productive habitat in nature that just happens to look really cool in our aquariums, performing exactly the same function. Now, fish population density, interestingly enough, is actually correlated with the availability of food resources. And as we've discussed many times here, leaf litter beds are highly productive food resources. In the wild habitats, there have been many instances where researchers have literally counted hundreds of fishes per square foot inhabiting that matrix of botanical materials and leaves on the bottom of stream beds, which, again, is primarily leaf litter. As dead leaves are broken down by bacteria and fungal action, they develop those biofilms and associated populations of microorganisms that are just an ideal food for larval fishes. So when you take into account that blackwater environments typically have relatively small populations of planktonic organisms that fishes can consume, it makes sense that the productive leaf litter zones are so attractive to the fishes. That being said, leaf litter beds are amicable to a diversity of life forms. Um, both planktonic and insects, and they tend to feed off the leaf litter itself as well as the fungi and bacteria present in them as you know they break down. And it all again starts with those leaves. The leaf litter bed is a surprisingly dynamic and one might even say rich little benthic biotope. It's contained within the otherwise impoverished waters. And as we've discussed before, it should come as no surprise that a large and surprisingly diverse assemblage of fishes makes their homes within and closely adjacent to these leaf litter beds. These are little food oases in an otherwise relatively devoid area of food. And trust me, the fishes aren't there just to look at the pretty leaves. And they're there to eat. Major blackwater rivers like the Rio Negro and the Orinoco are often called impoverished. I use that term uh, in terms of planktonic production. 
Um, they show little seasonal fluctuations in algal or bacterial populations. This is a fact borne out by many years of study by science. However, impoverished doesn't mean devoid of life. And in many cases, these populations of food organisms do vary from time to time and the fish along with them. Other blackwater systems do show you know, seasonal fluctuations like lakes and watercourses that are enriched with overflow in the spring months. At low water levels, the nutrients in the population of these life forms are generally more dense, which makes sense. Creatures like mites, insects, chironomids, you know, bloodworms, copepods like Daphne and so forth are the dominant fauna that fishes tend to feed off in these waters. When you study gut content analysis done by ichthyologists on the fishes found in these habitats, this is predominantly what you find. And this is interesting to contemplate when we consider what to feed our fishes in aquariums, isn't it? There's a lot of food out there. For the fishes willing to look for it, which pretty much all of them devote most of their lives to doing anyway. It's not really that much different in the aquarium, is it? I mean, as the leaves and botanicals break down, they're acted upon by fungi and bacteria, the degree of which is dependent upon the available food sources. Granted, with fishes in closer proximity and higher density than in many wild systems, the natural food sources are probably not sufficient to be the primary source of food for our fishes, but they're one hell of a supplement, right? That's why a botanical-rich, leaf-litter-dominated aquarium is filled with fishes spending a lot of time foraging in and among the leaf litter, just like in nature. I think I kind of answered that one. Uh, next question comes from RK of Wilmington, Delaware, USA. And he asks, uh, Hey, Scott, love your blogs and podcasts. I've long been a fan of Amano's Nature Aquarium books, although I think that his old works are not like the ones we see everyone playing with. I've heard you mention that you are a fan of his too, and I feel like the Botanical Aquarium draws somewhat from his early works. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with you on that. Can you explain this further? Ooh, lot to unpack there, right? I can go on and on about this, so stop me. You know, when you consider the types of aquariums that we work with, I would imagine that it is probably funny to outsiders, or to those new to our little obsession to hear us going on and on about utilizing dried leaves and seed pods and twigs and stuff, and along with words like methodology and technique to describe it. I can't help but think that Amanu, who spent years studying many aspects of nature and her influence on the aquatic environments, would really love this stuff. I think he'd love the unique aesthetics, sure, but I think he'd especially love how these ephemeral materials that we play with can influence the aquarium's function. It's the essence of his embrace of the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi. I think he'd kind of gently scold the hobby and perhaps lament how it's embraced mostly the more superficial aspects of nature, beautiful as they are, as opposed to the whole picture in the aquarium work, sanitizing and editing it, editing it along the way versus representing nature as it is. We talk about this a lot here. I suppose that there are occasional smirks and giggles from some quarters of the hobby when they initially see our tanks and, you know, with some thinking, really, they toss a bunch of leaves and twigs in there and they think that this resulting mess is natural or some evolved aquascaping technique or something. Funny thing is that in reality, it is sort of a revolution, isn't it? I mean, sure, on the surface, this doesn't seem like much. You know, toss some leaves and botanicals in an aquarium, see what happens. It's not like no one ever did this before. And to make, you know, and to make it seem more complicated than it is to develop or quantify technique for it, which is a true act of human nature, I suppose is a bit humorous. Yeah, I can see that. On the other hand, the idea behind this practice is not just to create a cool-looking tank. It's not about making excuses for abandoning aquarium best practices. It's some justification for allowing our tanks to look the way they do. We don't embrace the aesthetic of dark water, bottom covered in decomposing leaves, and the appearance of biofilms and algae on driftwood just because it allows us to be more relaxed in the care of our tanks or because we think we're so much smarter than, you know, the underwater diorama-loving, hype-mongering competition aquascaping crowd. Well, maybe we are. I, you know, I'm going to keep dissing those guys until they put their skills to work on something real. Sorry, guys. 
But really, I mean, we're doing this for a reason, to create more authentic looking, natural functioning aquatic displays for our fishes, to understand and acknowledge their fishes and their very existence is influenced by the, you know, the habitats in which they've evolved. We've mentioned ad nauseum here that wild tropical habitats are influenced greatly by the surrounding geography and the flora of their region, which in turn have considerable influence on the population of fishes which inhabit them, you know, them and of course the fish's life cycle. The simple fact of the matter is, when we add botanical materials to an aquarium, and we accept what occurs as a result, regardless of whether our intent is to you know, create a, a different aesthetic or perhaps something more, we are to a very real extent replicating those processes and influences that occur in wild habitats in nature. The presence of botanical materials like leaves in these habitats is foundational to their existence. You know, in tropical species of trees, the you know, the phenomenon of leaf drop is really important to the surrounding environment. Vital nutrients are typically bound up in the leaves, so a regular release of the leaves by the trees helps replenish the minerals and nutrients in the soils, which are typically depleted from eons of leaching into the surrounding forests. And the rapid nutrient depletion, by the way, is why it's not healthy to burn tropical forests. The release of nutrients as a result of fire is so rapid that the habitat can't even process it, and in essence, the nutrients are lost forever. Now, interestingly enough, most tropical forest trees are classified as evergreens and don't have a specific seasonal leaf drop like the deciduous trees that many of us in the northern hemisphere are more familiar with. Rather, they replace their you know, leaves gradually throughout the year as the leaves age and subsequently fall off the trees. So what's the implication here, Scott? <laughs> okay, well, the more or less continuous supply of leaves falling off the jungles, you know, the trees in the jungles and into the waterways in these habitats is why you'll see leaves at varying stages of decomposition in these tropical streams. It's also we leaf litter banks may be almost permanent structures within some of these bodies of water. And for the fishes and other organisms which live in and around and above the litter beds, there's a lot of potential food, which does vary somewhat between the wet and dry seasons and the accompanying water levels. Makes sense. The fishes tend to utilize the abundant mud, detritus, and epiphytic materials which accumulate in the leaf litter as food. During the dry season, water levels are lower. This organic layer, of course, compensates for the shortage of other food sources. During the higher water periods, there's so much greater amount of allophonous input, remember that stuff, <laughs> from the surrounding terrestrial environment in the form of insects, fruits, and other plant material. I suppose that in the aquarium, you know, it's pretty much always the wet season, right? Because we tend to top off and replace decomposing leaves and botanicals more or less continuously, and we feed our foods, our fishes these natural foods, hopefully, pretty, pretty consistently. Now, of course, this is where I get into what I'll call speculative environmental biology. So what if we stopped replacing leaves and even lowered water levels or decreased water exchanges in our tanks to correspond to, I don't know, for example, the Amazonian dry season, which is June to December? What impacts on the environmental parameters of our tanks would this have? And if you consider that many fishes tend to spawn in the dry season, you know, concentrating in the real shallow waters, could this have implications for stimulating breeding? Could this be a rethinking or a reimagining of how we spawn and rear some of our fishes? I believe it might. I think we need to look a lot deeper into the idea of environmental manipulation for the purpose of getting our fishes to be healthier, colorful, and especially to spawn. Now, I know this idea is nothing new on a macro level. You know, we've been doing water temps and lighting levels and tweaking environmental parameters to get fishes to spawn for a long time. Killy keepers have been doing this for years and years and years. However, I don't think we've been doing a lot of real specific environmental manipulations like adjusting water levels, nutrient loads you know, like pulsing leaves or botanicals to get biofilm growth or change it to dissolve oxygen, etc., etc., for the purpose of general husbandry of these fishes, not just, you know, the spawning. I think there's so many different things that we can play with and so many nuances that we can investigate and manipulate in our aquarium 
you know, to influence the health and spawning behavior of fish, that it's just unbelievable. I think that this could add, add even a new, you know, nuance to the typical biotope aquarium when they get real specific, you know, when they say they're simulating the uh, Preto de Eva River in October or whatever with environmental conditions such as water level, amounts of alchthonius input, etc., to match that time of year. Not just an aesthetic representative designed to mimic the look, but a functionally aesthetic representation of a natural habitat intended to operate like one, full-time. Nuances, micro-influences, subtle steps. The possibilities are endless here. How do we start? Well, we start by making those mental shifts and accepting the dark water, the accumulation of leaves, the botanicals, the apparent randomness of their presence. We study you know, the natural habitats from where our fishes come from, not just for the way they look, but for the why they look that way and for how the impacts of the surrounding environments influence them in, in multiple ways. Amano understood this. His disciples, if you will, in my humble opinion, seem to have dropped this in favor of mimicking his look while apparently disregarding his love of the processes which occur in nature. There's a tremendous amount of academic material out there for those willing to deep dive into this stuff and a tremendous amount to unravel and apply to our aquarium practices. We're literally just scratching the surface. We're making these ships, you know, to accept the true randomness of nature as it is. We're establishing and nurturing this art of functional aesthetics. And my real hope for the future with all this stuff, that one day when some kid adds some specific combo of botanical materials to her wild beta tank, for example, and someone asks why, she'll respond with something like, oh, because these materials mimic the alochthonous inputs which occur in their wild habitats and provide foraging and, you know, humic substances to manipulate the aquarium environment and encourage the development of biofilms and other microorganisms for their long-term health. Okay, that's a mouthful, and probably no 11-year-old will ever say that, but, but I think that she'd suggest that the idea of using botanicals to do more than just create a pretty look in the aquarium is pretty important. My hope is that this mindset will sort of percolate into the consciousness of the general hobby for the good of everybody who plays with tropical fishes, not just for us obsessed weirdos. Perhaps one day, among the things that we indoctrinate neophyte aquarists you know, with, uh, as fundamental skills, besides like water changes, quarantine, and stocking, will be things like adding appropriate botanical materials to the aquarium to facilitate more natural conditions to the aquatic organisms we keep. Well, one could always hope, right? I mean, that's indeed what I mean when we talk about how we operate at the delta of intersection, the delta at the intersection of science and art here at Tannen. You're there because we're here. That's our mission here at Tannen. That's that's the promise of the botanical-style aquarium. It's a pact with nature, once you know forged by a mono, but evolved by a new generation of hobbyists eager to replicate the form and function of nature in their own aquariums as never before. So I tell you, study the natural, embrace the ephemeral, read about the philosophy of wabi sabi that you know a mono taught, that's been seemingly forgotten in the quest for all the superficial aesthetic stuff. Think of the possibilities, and it starts with observing and studying nature. That's his lesson. That's, that's what I believe Amano was all about, and I respect him immensely for having introduced that to the aquarium world. So study nature extensively, and study your aquarium, of course. And then just add leaves, seed pods, bark, and twigs, and open your mind up. Amano himself, I think, would really appreciate this. Yeah, I'm pretty certain he would. Okay, that's it for today. I really went on and on and on rambling about this, and I'll write a damn book before this is over. But I think those were really great questions to get a discussion going, so thank you. Until next time, stay curious, stay thoughtful, stay engaged, stay diligent, stay creative, and always stay wet. This is Scott Feldman. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.